0: You are now the bolt
1: zone. welcome to the bolt zone this is a competitive magic gathering podcast for the average spike co-hosted by me cody debose and the reigning magic world champion and pro tour march of the machine champion nathan steuer we're bringing you the best tips tricks and strategies to improve your game and be a better player This week we have a lot to talk about. Uh, We are right around the corner from Round 3 Regional Championships kicking off this weekend. So we're taking one last look at the Pioneer meta heading into it. Um, we got some predictions and some hot takes to share about that. And then we're also going to be talking about knowing your deck in Pioneer and the importance of getting reps, knowing your lines, and knowing how your deck fares against the meta. And then last, we're going to take a quick look at some spoilers from the Lord of the Rings set, which will release Uh, later this month. But first, Nathan, how are you doing? I'm doing good, and I'm excited to kind of cover what's coming up this weekend with
0: the Dallas regionals and generally what's been going on in Pioneer. I know last time we talked about Pioneer, we were going over the results of the Pro Tour leading into this RC season and talking about what is this RC going to look like that might be different. Um, If you recall, back in Atlanta, we had another Pioneer regional championships, and a few big things have changed the metagame since then especially with the introduction of a new good aggro deck and so what i'm excited to cover is what can we expect now that we couldn't necessarily expect then and what have the shakeups been before we last talked about pioneer that contribute to maybe a new strategy coming out for this
1: regionals event yeah there's definitely some uh, noteworthy changes to talk about and it'll be exciting to dive into those uh, but first i just want to thank our new patrons and everyone who took the time to leave a review. So we want to give a big shout out to everyone that took the time to leave a review on the show. We appreciate all of the feedback and support you've been giving us over these last three episodes. Um, It's been really awesome to hear feedback and thoughts from the community. So shout outs to uh, a bunch of anonymous users who gave us five star reviews on Apple podcasts. And uh, for CC Kouliane for leaving feedback on Spotify Um, and a big welcome to our many new followers and all the listeners who took the time to listen and rate the show. Plus, huge thank yous to David Chen by me or you and Eric Heath for becoming new patrons since the last episode. We really, really appreciate that support. What you do helps us keep the show going. So thank you very much for that, patrons. And if you, listener, would like to support the show, you can do so by leaving us a review on your favorite podcast platform or by signing up for our Patreon. We revamped our tiers recently have lots of new rewards in the Patreon and you can help keep the lights on for as little as a dollar a month. You can support several hours of the best MTG content around. So if you want to check out our Patreon, the link is going to be in the show notes for you. All right, with that out of the way, um, we can go ahead and start talking about the regional championships. So these are going to start happening this weekend. We have the US, which is taking place in Dallas at DreamHack. And then we have Canada's one of them, at least uh, in Toronto. We got the Southeast Asia, China, and South America RCs all happening this weekend. Uh, last season, they were a lot more spread out than this. So it'll be interesting to kind of see all the results coming in over one weekend and seeing how the format shakes up across all these different high level events. But I guess we can just start with what are your thoughts on what the meta is going to look like now? How do you see it shaking out over these RCs? There is a degree of
0: this meta game. Has stayed a little static in terms of what the most represented decks are. And a part of this is that people really like the Rakdos deck. I think it's a deck that a lot of people are just drawn to because it is, if you played a lot of standard, very similar to the Red, Black, Shell in Standard. It's a deck that feels particularly high agency, which is what people look for in deck selection. You have a lot of options. You get to play Thought Season, Fable, which are two of the strongest cards in the format with Red, Black, Midrange, and so. I see it as a statement of this is a deck that a lot of people like, and it has a pretty flat matchup spread. Doesn't have a ton of insane matchups, doesn't have a ton of horrible matchups. So that's kind of why I expect to see Red Black to be the most popular deck going forward. Um, Green and Creativity, two decks that I expect to be uh, uh, quite popular this weekend. Creativity, uh, speaking directly towards the last tournament in Valencia that took place over the past weekend, was something that wasn't doing so well prior it was if you recall something that was popular due to team cfb's um very good performance with it at the last pro tour in philadelphia and then i expected that it wouldn't be as popular but this past weekend proven otherwise where two of the decks in the top four were blue red creativity decks and it seemed to do quite well overall Um,
1: it's been kind of like slowly on the upswing in terms of popularity and then last weekend we saw it really finally start putting up some big results right why why is this a case is where my head went to like is this a case because the deck has gotten a little
0: bit of a new shell around it that's kind of the easiest conclusion to draw to which sure. is the creativity isn't the card that's making this deck good it's actually that the Gearhawks are pushing the deck to a new direction where that shell is actually quite successful again about going over the top um one thing that i've liked seeing from that version is that it's moved towards being a little bit more of a, a fair deck rather than just trying to kill with Xenagos and this means that it's a little bit better at winning games where it doesn't draw creativity it almost has doubled the amounts of creativity if you look at it through the frame of what is my deck doing against Rakdos just because creativity and Gearhawk are both cards that you want to use hand disruption on and there's a lot of games where you're not fast enough to take both of them yeah
1: and it's it's so easy to just cast the gear Hulk in that matchup and you know sit back and play blue red control and cast the gear Hulk. so yeah it's eight ways to win instead of just having to rely on the creativity i agree that has made it a lot better right we should also kind
0: of cover what is going on with green and i think when we talked about green last time we were saying that the introduction of pelucranos would be a factor that makes green a lot more represented just due to shoring up some weaknesses versus spirits which was the default worst matchup and versus Grease Fang, which was a close matchup that you swung in your favor with the presence of Pelucranos. Right, And I do think that principle holds true. However, one thing that Green is suffering from is that I think Rakdos builds are still building with Green in mind. And so that matchup actually isn't as good for Green as you would hope when it was first the case. That dynamic was a lot stronger for Green, but there there's a lot of extinction events and a lot of misery shadows. And I do think that that matchup well, it's close, might even be a tiny bit Rakdos' favorite if, if Red-Black decides to devote its
1: slots towards beating green. So Yeah, I'm I think gonna, they can definitely swing it yeah, in their yeah. favor. Yeah, I think also something worth noting is that it just seems like Rakdos players are getting better at navigating that matchup, um, not only just in building their deck, but also you know playing around the threats and, and timing their thought seizes, timing um, when they're going to put removal down. And I, I don't know, I feel like green has been kind of stale... Um, other than like adding Palukranos and stuff. But Rakdos can just pivot and and play in so many different ways that those players are just learning to navigate the matchup a little better. So I agree that I feel like it's slightly favored or at least a very, very close matchup compared to how it was.
0: Totally, totally. So as we kind of covered, Rakdos and Green still going to be quite popular. That matchup is close. Rakdos has a lot of agency in determining if they want to beat Green very heavily and give up some other matchup percentages. What is new though? I mean, I, I do think that the, the biggest thing that we haven't really touched on, we've, we've hinted at it, but the biggest thing is the presence of the Red White Convoke deck. Um, Cody, what are some of your thoughts on the Red White Convoke deck first?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's pretty cool. I, I like that we've had sort of a big innovation within the last couple of weeks and not just, you know, slotting X new card into a certain archetype that already exists. It's kind of fun having a new archetype being born and molded right in front of us. That being said, I think that the hype around this deck is definitely probably a little higher than it should be. Uh, I think it's good. It can get some explosive starts. It can go really wide, but it's also pretty exploitable, and there's a lot of ways to beat it that other decks you know, have a lot of flexible options to counter it.
0: Yep. I mean, the Red White Convoke deck is something that had a lot of hype initially because it was like, oh, it's a playable strategy that you can play that's an aggro deck. And prior to that, we had exactly Mono White Humans as a deck that you can realistically pick up or technically Spirits, if you wanted to categorize it that way, though, I think that would be a little bit of a weird categorization. Sure. Um, And so with the existence of the Red White deck, it suddenly means that you can build an aggro deck that competes in one very explosive draws that some decks can't beat you have a nut draw which is what i'm looking for in a pioneer deck and you also have a unique angle of attacking where your your deck suddenly has ways of cheating on mana Mm
1: -hmm. in
0: your aggro deck which is huge um we already know like there was crazy comparisons made to something like hogak which is a little bit out of line with the reality of the deck i mean this is no Hogak, and it's just a playable aggro deck and that's a good thing for pioneer to have a playable aggro deck but the hype around it was a little overblown in my opinion and we've already referenced this tournament a few times but the i believe the lms valencia last weekend which was pioneer kind of showed that this deck when it's you know when it's operating at full capacity maybe it's great but it only won 45 percent of its matches which i take with a small grain of salt but it just means that this isn't some Broken deck, good against all the other strategies. It has its weaknesses, and if people are prepared for it, it's not going to be as successful. So we'll see going into this weekend in Dallas what that looks like for the next chances.
1: Yeah, it's going to be super interesting to see how sort of that overblown hype we just talked about affects deck building choices, especially with this deck cropping up so close to these RCs. You know, did people over prepare for it? And now they're bringing in, you know, a ton of hate cards for it. And then, you know, this archetype doesn't actually perform that well. And people are stranded with all these cards that are not great in other matchups. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, if being overprepared for uh, Red White Convoke sort of costs you in the long run, especially if this deck does what it does in Valencian and just doesn't perform well. Um, so I think another thing we're talking about aggro wise is Mono White getting uh, copper coat Vanguard and basically having two lords at two mana so to speak between that and thali's lieutenant you know monoh has been getting a lot of pieces lately and in the last uh regional championship cycle that was pioneer we saw this deck have some variable results i think it won the american rc if i remember correctly in atlanta but other than that the deck posted not great results for the most part so do we think that it can kind of swing that around or you know does the all-in aggro strategy just get punished, especially with people hedging more against Convoke now. I
0: just don't think that Mono White is a very good deck, and maybe that's a hot
1: take. I think that
0: <laughs> the deck is, you know, when you're playing against very good players, it tends to not perform that well because I feel that the individual power level of the cards is much lower than a lot of the format. It does have a nut draw and your nut draw is one mana two one, two mana thalia, three mana adeline and mm-hmm. hope that that's good enough. And you do punish decks that stumble, but I think that the Red White Convoke deck almost just does a better job of punishing stumbles than any other deck. And maybe the consistency issues are something you could point to as something the Mono White deck doesn't have, but I would argue that there might even be more redundancy in this White Red deck with eight copies of the five drop in order to access the Explosive Nut draws. And so my instinct is that quickly a good amount of the meta share is going to be of the mono white meta share is going to be eaten up by red white or otherwise the people who play mono white are not going to be successful in a sea of red black decks
1: yeah i think that's a fair way to put it speaking of other decks uh at valencia we also saw five color fires uh perform pretty well there's the karuga version running around and a yorian version running around you know both of those decks in my opinion seem pretty well positioned I could see them making a splash at these RCs just between having a really good red black matchup. I think that the convoke matchup is pretty fair. You have temporary lockdown. Uh, That card is just insane in that matchup. Uh, And then, you know, it's serviceable against mono green, depending on the build of creativity, the matchup can kind of be iffy, but yeah, the deck's just super interesting. I think it's underexplored. Do you have any thoughts on the, on the fires lists right now? So for the RC in
0: Atlanta, my team put a lot of energy into trying to do well with Karuga Fires and build a good variant of it. Um, meanwhile, I was busy playing Phoenix and working on that deck <laughs> at the time. And we thought going in, half the team thought going in, that the deck was quite good against Red Black, Mono Green, um, basically all of the top decks. They were felt very strongly about this. And the reality of it was that I think the Mono Green matchup was a really huge issue. Um, that they worked pretty hard to try to beat, but ultimately, Mono Green just has way too many consistent draws against them, which were hard to go over the top of. And I didn't think that the Cavaliers or the Karugas were that effective when you were behind, especially. And the big issue is like something like Haywire might could be backbreaking if they ever found sure. that with Karn. And so I do feel that the big question mark with Karuga Fires is can this deck? Um, fade Monogreen for the tournament. Like, I, I think that is where I would be at. Like, if you knew you weren't going to play against more than one, maybe two Monogreens, then I could see it making a splash. But I would be skeptical of playing it if I expected Monogreen to be anything close to, like, 15%, um, which may be as high as you can expect it to be. I don't know if it can be much higher than that.
1: So Yeah, I agree. I, I feel like maybe we'll see it around 10-ish percent. I think yeah. creativity is going to take up a bigger share than most people are probably expecting just given the kind of, again, that slow build it's had over the past few weeks and then posting some positive results recently. What do you expect to be more popular, Cody, mono green or creativity? You know, that's really close. I, it might be a hot take, but I'm going to say creativity. You know, we talked about agency and, and picking decks with that. And I think that playing the the creativity list, especially the gear Hulk version, just being able to, Play that blue red control role is something that people enjoy in general, um, and I think that I, you know I've seen a lot of chatter online of people putting a lot of work into this, and I think that there is just some people out there that just dislike playing the mono green deck, you know, despite its power level, and so you know for those people who don't want to play green, don't want to play Rakdos, I think creativity is a, a solid choice, you know, to kind of default to. So I wouldn't be surprised if we see that top the meta share for mon- uh, over mono green. Yeah,
0: that's a great point. I expect to see. Mono Green being slightly more popular than creativity just as a default. But I think your argument that people tend to um not like playing the mono green deck as much is a good point. I I don't know how quick people are going to respond to the creativity um information of how well it did last weekend, and that's the biggest question mark for me, which is if this was one week sooner, I think that people would adapt more. But the fact that it's the week before means that I think I expect less people to suddenly switch decks. That they've been testing yeah, and fine here.
1: That's fair, too. That's fair, for sure. Which actually ties into what we're going to be talking about today as far as, you know, getting reps with your deck and knowing it. One other hot take I have uh, for this cycle, RCs. You know, I think we already talked about, but Red Black is going to be the most represented deck. I think it's pretty safe to say that. But I, I'm going to say that this deck fails to put more than one copy in the top eight at any given RC. And on top of that, that Rakdos is not going to win any of the RCs. Any of the RCs? None of them. I, I'm, not, I'm going to say that's not going to win any of them. That's, that's a steaming take. I, I'm i going to say that Rakdos
0: is going to put two people in the U.S. top eight. How about that? I'll, I'll go right. right against that. Two there people go. in the US top eight. We'll I, come I, back I next episode crazy. to compare. <laughs> <laughs> but here's my other hot take. I think that at least one RC will have two Lotus
1: Fields in the top eight. Okay.
0: They will have two Lotus Fields in the top eight. All right.
1: We will so. We will see. I think that deck is super under the radar right now. So it, it feels like it could be in a good spot.
0: Yeah. I mean, what what I kind of noticed is like when we talk about what, I mean, okay, I haven't even said it yet, but I'm going to be playing Lotus Field myself in the RC this oh, weekend. Oh, spoiler alert. <laughs> I know, I know. Maybe we should cover that a little later, but I do think that it is something that's particularly under the radar, like you said, and lines up well. And one thing I wanted to mention is, When I talk about, okay, what cyborg cards are people going to have for Lotus Field, a good thing that I look at is, well, if I'm looking at the red-black decks, how many copies of cyborg hate is Misplaced Ginger playing in his deck? Because (laughs) there's this trend of, like, everyone is copying Misplaced Ginger's red-black list for tournaments and playing something close to it, and that dictates the amount of hate that you're going to face in a given weekend. And, I mean... Shout out to misplaced ginger for having that effect on a lot of the red black builds, but I really do feel that in the U.S. and Canada regions, he does have a lot of um, reach for the red black stock deck. So definitely, that, that's kind of a cool thing I've been thinking about.
1: Yeah, for sure. And I mean, if you want to, talk, I wasn't sure if you were going to want to mention what you were playing, but if you want to talk for a minute about Lotus and and how you feel about that going into the RCs, we can do that now.
0: Sure. Yeah, let's cover that a bit. So I think that. Actually, Cody, as we're covering this, maybe we should also go over our next session and uh, section and talk about knowing your deck because I think that this kind of ties into my reason for playing Lotus. So I'll start there. Um, I I think that a bit of why you should pick your what you should base your deck selection on in Pioneer is you need to have experience with your deck and you need to understand your plan for different matchups because at the end of the day, it is very very hard to pick a Pioneer deck every single week that is different and try to adjust and know your plans at every matchup because there's so many decks. Um, Why don't you give a little bit of an intro into knowing your deck and what that looks like in Pioneer?
1: Yeah, so uh, recently we had a Metagame Mentor article from Frank Karsten, um, and I thought he wrote something very interesting in referring to Pioneer. uh, And he said, quote it's mostly a matter of finding a deck you enjoy building familiarity with its play patterns and knowing the matchups you might face the format offers the tools to counter any strategy uh, and players who came prepared with the right sideboard cards will often emerge victorious and i think that definitely speaks to at least half the battle as far as you know picking a deck you like and getting the reps with it and then the other half knowing the matchups you're going to face and knowing how to navigate those matchups so you Pioneer is just a a different format than something like modern, where you have these ultra powerful cards and synergies that can kind of bail you out of tight spots or sketchy situations. And in my experience, and, and from what I know about Pioneer, the format just demands that your play and your lines it need to be a little more crisp than um, something like modern, which obviously you need to play well on modern too, but you can get bailed out just with good cards. And then I also think that the play draw problem is a lot more noticeable in pioneer and knowing how to sort of navigate that is another big thing. So knowing how your deck functions on the play versus on the draw can get you a lot of equity in certain matchups. And, you know, a lot of times you're gonna have to play your deck in a totally different way. And that's only something you can pick up with experience. <laughs>
0: I agree with that. And it was something that for the last pro tour my team considered very seriously is for most events, what we would do is we would have a a longer preliminary period where we're just testing out a ton of different things and we're jumping around and we're trying a ton of decks. But for the pioneer event in particular, um, a big theme was we need to make sure that we're picking our deck A little bit earlier so that we can get the necessary practice with this deck against everything because the edge in deck selection is a little bit smaller than in other formats and so the edge in terms of uh, playing the games well understanding your plan across the board and making sure that like something is all according to your mapping and plans is more important just given that the edges you get in deck selection in this format have diminishing returns at a certain point like jumping around you're probably going to lose more edge playing a deck that you have less experience with than the second or third best choice for a weekend um that matters a lot so yeah that ties into why I'm playing Lotusville for the weekend too which is i am happy to play something like red black midrange it's a deck that i'm i think i can play at pretty high capacity close to 100% capacity <laughs> and I wouldn't have any problem playing with those cards even after not playing the Pioneer version for a while. But the main thing that I had to face was, well, if I'm picking between these two strategies that I have familiarity with, either Lotus or Red Black mid-range, where do I think I'm going to have an advantage when it comes to the full metagame spread? I have a belief that the matchup in the mirror match between the Red Black decks is actually not a super high agency matchup. You don't have a ton of... Game breaking decisions, the very good cards are much better than the worst cards, meaning that draws that include Fable and draws that include Bank Buster in the Mirror um, are much higher uh, in terms of win percentage that they give you than playing better than the opponent in those contexts. Yeah. And it's actually particularly hard to mess up sequences when you're just casting rule spells and <laughs> casting the best threats. Sure. And so that makes me inclined to feel that if Red Black is going to be the most popular deck, I want to play a deck that I have familiarity with that's good against Red Black and i think that this is a weekend where there's a particularly lower level um, amount of hate and so i i don't expect to see that many damping spheres
1: not I definitely don't not to
0: see as many necromenches. if we look at the stock black red list they had them maybe three weeks ago and now they're a little bit less and those make a big difference when people have to play specific cards that are only good against lotus to accommodate for what even if they know i'm playing lotus even if they know 5% of the field is playing Lotus, are they going to really want to use their Cyborg slots in this way when they don't overlap in other places? So that's a unique strength of Lotus Field, which is the cards that are going to answer you really don't overlap a lot of places.
1: Yeah. And I think that that honestly comes back to the discussion we had about the red white Convoke deck, because, you know, that sort of had all the attention over the last few weeks. And on the surface, he might be like, oh, well, Lotus is bad going into that matchup just because it's so fast and you have trouble dealing with all their creatures. But looking at it a little deeper, all these decks are playing sideboard cards for convoke and you know they have to make room somehow. Like you said, if lotus is not really in the spotlight and it's a small percentage, people are trimming on those cards to beef up their convoke matchup and that might make the field actually a little softer to lotus field in a roundabout sort of way despite convoke being a big thing maybe totally totally agree i do think that
0: people tend to not want to lose to these acro decks harder than they tend to not want to lose to the the one combo deck or two combo decks in the format even creativity which we could previously consider a combo deck isn't really a combo deck that's weak to traditional combo cards anymore so that is a big point in favor of like you know this deck has shifted into more of a fair deck and you have to have a better plan against torrential Gearhawk and you can use graveyard interaction but that's kind of it And I do feel strongly that the consensus will be that the Gearhulk version is better.
1: It was kind of uncertain for a little while, but it has become
0: more and more apparent that the Gearhulk version is what people are inclined to play.
1: Yeah, and really that deck just sums up the whole like combo control style where they can sit back and play a totally fair game and never see a creativity or never resolve a creativity and just absolutely blow you out of the water still. So definitely... Interesting how that has shaped up. Um, I think another thing worth mentioning in Pioneer, as far as knowing your deck, is learning to sequence your lands and build your mana base. So, you know, without fetches, unlike Modern, the mana base can be a lot more fickle in Pioneer, and you have to carefully craft it around what you want to do and then also play it correctly, which I think is something worth noting. You know, a lot of people, and, you know, obviously no hate against ripping a deck list offline and and playing it for yourself but usually when people do that you know they might change a few slots and they might might try and tweak it and customize it to their play style or whatever and i think that the mana base is definitely something you have to take into consideration for every iteration of your deck just because it can be a lot more fragile obviously if you're playing a one or two color deck it's a little easier Um, but as soon as you add that third fourth color things get a lot trickier Um, So, you know, in Pioneer, we see the Triumphs. We have check land, shocks, pain land, slow land. So making those mesh together and sequencing your land drops in the most efficient way, the most effective way for your deck, I think can also get you some equity in this format. And it's something that not a ton of people have practiced with or are really great at. Um, But I think that that goes back to just getting enough reps with your deck and knowing your lines and where you need to end up on turn four from the very beginning of the game. Any thoughts on lands in Pioneer? Yeah. I mean, this is one thing
0: that I train specifically when I'm doing coaching. And a big thing that I focus on is what do the early lands that your opponent's playing mean about the rest of their hand too? I mean, mana bases aren't super strong in general, meaning like you're going to have more consistency issues. You don't have fetch lands. We have to play Triumphs, which are not the best lands, like to a large degree, like they're awkward. And so one exercise that I do is I ask myself, would my opponent play this land over X different land for example with black red it's a pretty easy example case like if they play a swamp turn one you can rule out a ton of lands from their hand you can say okay they can't have haunted or they can't have um well let's say specifically they go like swamp go I'm, I'm thinking okay they can't have black cliffs they can't have sulfurous springs is like a card they could have they, they can't have uh hive of the eye tyrant. Sure. Um, if they don't Fatal Push my one drop, they can't have Haunted Rage, they can't have Blood Crypt. Kind of going through this process of elimination through paying attention to their mana. Um, it's very different from Modern where the presence of fetch lands means that the information you gain from the opponent's mana base is a lot more limited. And I know this wasn't exactly what you're referring to, but I do think that there's a degree of which Pioneer mana bases are exploitable in the sense that there are you know a lot of decks that have to play... Very suboptimal lands and can't actually cast their spells super reliably, and it forces them into two color archetypes in most cases. Right. Um, we really see that the punishment for playing a three plus color archetype in pioneers is, is very extreme, and something like the five color Brinklight decks, they have to play a copious number of these tri lands, right? Like mm-hmm. in order to make anything work. So, it's a big statement of if you want to have your deck, if you want your mana to be functional and cast your spells on curve you basically need to be in a two color deck with a lot of untapped lands or otherwise be able to utilize basics to some larger degree
1: yeah it's definitely interesting and the point you brought up about just being able to analyze you know what your opponent has in their hand and what their plan is based on their lands i think is something super interesting and maybe we can actually dive a little deeper into that in a future episode but lastly in this section just knowing um the more obscure lines and interactions in your deck I think also is something worth noting in Pioneer. So, for example, I was playing in an RCQ a couple of weekends ago. I picked up uh, a Grixis Transmogrify with a Traxalist. that looked really fun, so I just wanted to try it out. Was playing a win and in for top eight and playing against uh, Red Black Sacrifice, I had this line where you know I uh, made a Mirex token on their end step. I had a Kaito out. The three mana Kaito. Never once have I ever ultimated that Kaito. Uh, but I had an opportunity come up. The game had just kind of ground to a halt. My opponent was tapped out. I could have ultimate the Kaito, swung it with the token, get my attracts out of the deck, declared attackers, and totally forgot about it. Um, and I think that no. definitely won the game. Yeah, it was so heartbreaking. Went on to lose the match in this top eight. So just that is an example. And I think every deck has these obscure lines on them that you're just not going to see that often. Um, but when they happen, they can really swing games in your favor and, and knowing them and having mastery over those interactions in your deck is important. Anything you want to share about that? Yeah. And, you know, to add on to that,
0: there is a degree of, I, I want to get to it in a bit, which is how do we approach this as a shift in open deck lists? And what does that mean for a tournament like this? Because I, I do feel like the effect on how you play the game and your opening hands where your sequences
1: are that you prioritize changes dramatically just based on how quick Pioneer decks can be. Yeah, absolutely. Open deck list totally changes the way you play out. So we're going to get to that in a second. But before we do, our next segment is brought to you by Boogie Board, the ultimate LCD life pad. Boogie Board's patented reusable writing surface allows you to track life totals and jot down quick notes during casual or competitive play. Never worry about ruining a notebook in your bag or running out of paper mid game again. After taking down your opponent, just press the button to clear and you're ready to start over. Boogie Board's best-selling jot tablet offers plenty of writing surface, while the Jot Pocket is perfect for tighter playing spaces. Boogie Board is available at friendly local game stores across the country and at major retailers. Learn more at myboogieboard.com slash games. That's myboogieboard.com slash games. Never start a match without your boogie board. So yeah, knowing your matchups is super important in this format and Although the decisions in Pioneer don't always feel like they're quite as impactful as some of the decisions you have in a format like Modern, they are important. I think one of the gripes people have about this format is that they feel like what they're doing just doesn't matter as much, Um, you know, but it definitely does. And knowing specifically how your deck interacts with your opponent's deck, I think is super important, along with just knowing your own lines.
0: Right. There there are a lot of spots in this format where games feel unwinnable because you started the game unable to win given you kept a bad hand for example and then it feels like man this format sucks like I had no agency but really you did have some agency you just chose to make a decision that didn't work out or otherwise was incorrect and the other degree of this is I love that open deckless allows you the opportunity to plan more diligently before a game starts because it minimizes this problem it means that you're going to play more real games of magic a lot of the time just given Mm -hmm. that a lot of what affects your keeper Morgans is, do I have to have something reactive on turn one? Or right. can I keep a hand that's a little slower that works at winning a later game. And knowing that information from both sides just means that there's more actual games of magic being played.
1: Yeah, I think it's huge. I mean, there's so many games going in blind, you know, whether you're playing online or an RCQ or whatever, where you keep a hand that is fine, but it, just folds to a turn one elf that you can't interact with, or you're playing against grease Fang and you have no interaction or grave hate and they just roll you on turn three or four. You know, there's so many of those games that are just non games because of your keep um, that really in you know, going in blind, you can't necessarily do anything about. Um, but yeah, learning how to mulligan, I think is also something worth mentioning. This format, I feel like, really rewards or punishes your mulligan decisions more than some others.
0: Totally. I, I do think that, I mean, one, one example of this is, I think that Mulliganing against a deck like red-black is particularly tricky and makes the deck more of a potent yeah. threat into a field, because there's this common like uh, knowledge that if you Mulligan against a thought-seized deck, you're just going to get thought-seized on less cards, and you're going to do a worse job at interacting, and I think that's true. But I also think there's a degree at which, what are you actually trying to mulligan against when you're playing against red black? Well, for me, I'm trying to mulligan into hands that are good against something like Bone Crusher Giant and good against something like Bloodthirst Harvester. Um, meaning that I want my threats to be lined up awkwardly for them. I want to have plays that can punish their um, their their slow starts because often that deck can have some awkward and clunky starts. Sure. Um, I do think that there's a degree in which. The the common issue with Pioneer Mulgans is that you really want your hand to be proactive and the reactive hands don't line up well because you don't know what you're trying to react to. And open deck list means that you can keep more reactive hands because you do know what you have to react to if you're thinking critically about what matters in a particular matchup. So that's why I would summarize why open deck list is very good for a format like an RC.
1: Yeah, I agree. I When playing in the RC in San Diego earlier this year, I'd love the open decklist format and I I think it really adds a lot so I agree with you 100%. It was interesting to hear what you just said about mulliganing into Rakdos because like you said that's a lot of deck that or a, a matchup that a lot of people are afraid to mulligan into because of Thoughtseize. So do you think that, you know, in general people are just putting too much stock into not mulliganing because of Thoughtseize? Do you think that I, I think in the format as a whole You should be mulliganing fairly aggressively. Like you said, you want to be proactive and find hands that let you curve out and and do your thing. But specifically in that matchup, I think that, you know, that mentality of mulliganing aggressively in this format, that's one of the ways that Rakdos punishes these other decks because it does have sees. So where do you sort of see the line of mulliganing to try and find something more proactive or better versus keeping an okay hand with an extra card?
0: Yeah, I mean... When I approach the Rakdos matchup, depending on what I'm playing, I think that there's a lot of cases in which you can invalidate pieces of cardboard that make up for the Mulgan, meaning that, like I was kind of mentioning, I think that some of their strengths are that they have cheap removal that's effective against you, and if you can set up in a way where the cheap removal isn't that effective against your hand, for example, playing Monogreen, Elves can often be a liability in a lot of your openers, and keeping hands with more lands can essentially draw you cards in the matchup. Um, So that's one place where I would Mulgan more aggressively against Rakdos because I think that they rely on you having awkward starts against them and you having more expensive cards in hand actually punishes the thoughts these ranges pretty significantly.
1: Yeah, blanking Um, their fatal push is huge.
0: Exactly. And so another thing that you can apply here versus Rakdos is if you often end games, well versus any deck really, if you often end games with cards still left in your hand, that means that there's a good chance that you can be Mulganing more. Um, Just because... The downside of mulganing is you start with one less piece of information and one less piece of cardboard that you have to recoup later. Right. But in a lot of matchups, you don't end up losing because both players are hell-bent and one player has one more card that ends up being the difference maker. You end up losing because one card was so game-breaking that it made up for two to three pieces of material. And so that's my mentality on mulganing in general and why I think that the philosophically, mulganing used to be bad in Magic because you didn't have as many cards that you can select from when you're doing right. a the type of mulligan that we have available, um, the one in where we can put cards back and now resources end up mattering less than good starts. And so you can t- tend to approach it with, I'm going to mulligan more aggressively, even in the face of thoughts, these decks, if I can piece together a plan.
1: Yeah, I think that's super important and that's a great mentality to keep. I think, you know, going back, if you picture how many games you've lost with cards in hand, uh, it's probably more than cards you don't have in hand. So that's, that's, Super interesting. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, one last thing I want to talk about in this section of knowing your pioneer deck is sort of, we hear all the time in combo decks is is knowing when to go for your combo. And I think that that's important here for decks like Creativity or Lotus or whatever. But also on a bigger scale, knowing when your deck is sort of ready to turn the corner or knowing when your deck is ready to close out the game. Um, how do you go about that you know, kind of timing it up and knowing when to go for it versus when you need more resources or you need to kind of sit back.
0: Right. This is where I usually ask myself, what is my opponent's biggest punish, their most punishing play? And if I'm in this position and they make this punishing play that they didn't necessarily have an opportunity to make earlier, that's an important part of this. Could they have made this play earlier? Do I have to consider it in their range? Um, Is it going to be game breaking and potentially lose me the game? And so there is a push and pull between how conservatively can I play slash can I try to play into everything before I go for something, and when you're playing a fair deck and you're trying to turn the corner, there's some degree of if you have such a strong inevitability. Let's think you're playing red black mid range against something like mono white. As the game goes on, you're going to have a stronger and stronger inevitability for every turn that you pass. Sure. And then I don't feel the need to turn the corner as aggressively and give them openings, with the exception of okay if I'm very low and I could die to brave the elements, I have to start turning the corner and start attacking at the, at the point in which we can say one removal spell doesn't break the whole game down for me. Um, yeah. Some that makes sense. Philosophy of what is the breaking point in this game? And so I like asking myself, when is, when is this like a critical turn in the game? That's the window that you're looking for. And it's more apparent when that critical turn is when you're playing a combo deck and you see, I'm going to die next turn. The, the adage there is okay you want to make your combo work the turn before you die to give yourself the most chances of being successful at it with the with the most amount of information that you've gotten and that's what the critical turn is pointing towards which is when are you going to be at the the difference between the most successful and the the closest to losing the game which is where you're you're going to want to go for the kill most of the time and that might be antithetical people might think well when you see yourself at a high chance of winning, you should just go for it. But my approach is more similar to, I want to guarantee that I win. If I am if I can't think of a combination that actually kills me or some way to disrupt me, I'm going to build and build and build until I get to that critical turn. Sure. So, yeah, I, I do think that it is uh, important to recognize what that critical turn looks like depending on the context of the matchup. If you're playing an aggro deck, that might mean making a riskier play on a turn before your opponent can play their most threatening play. And the basis for this decision-making is often, what is the worst possible card from for my opponent to play right now for my game state? How likely is it for them to have that card? And if they make this play, can I still beat it if I go for a risky line? So that's the risk analysis process that I usually go, go through.
1: Yeah, very insightful. And I think that that honestly sums up this section perfectly because you mentioned two things. You mentioned knowing when you need to go for when you when you need to go for it and what your deck needs to accomplish it and then also knowing what the most punishing play is so knowing your opponent's deck and knowing the meta um and again both of those things come with time come with reps so people get your reps in with pioneer super important pick your deck learn your deck uh and pick up some equity in that way all right and so before we close out today um i just want to touch on a few quick spoilers that we have seen from the lord of the Rings set and this is going to be straight to modern so Similar to Modern Horizons, although from what we've seen so far, the power level is not looking anywhere near that. But Lord of the Rings will be coming out on June 23rd, and you'll have a chance to play with those cards very soon. So right now in this episode, we're just going to talk about um, cards that have been newly spoiled within the last couple days. So not stuff that got previewed way earlier, like the One Ring, Reprieve, stuff like that. Uh, And we are recording this on Thursday morning, so anything that comes out after this we'll touch on in the next episode. Uh, But these are just a few cards so far that look pretty interesting so the first one forge anew this is a three mana two and a white Enchantment. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you can return a target equipment from your graveyard to the battlefield. Uh, and then on your turn, you can also activate equip abilities anytime you could cast an instant, and you can pay zero rather than the equip cost for the first equip you do each turn. So <laughs> all three of those lines, Hammer players are just salivating over, except for the three mana cost. Um, so it is a bit expensive, but it does do everything you want. It does a lot. How do we feel about this for modern Hammer time? I mean, this card is basically...
0: A Hammer, a Cigar Dissade, and a Pure Steel Paladin all in one card. All one, yeah. <laughs> think about it like that, you're actually saving a mana, right? That's very, yeah, <laughs> that's
1: true. You're getting a discount. Three mana um, never looked better.
0: I I actually think this card is a very high potential for being good, especially as a cyborg card that just lets you consolidate how many cards you actually need to do the effects you want to do. I particularly like that it return something from the graveyard because if you're playing against a discard deck hammer is the card that they want to take the most and so it's at a premium versus thoughts these decks or otherwise decks are going to disrupt your hammers from hand yeah it looks good to me i'm curious to see how it affects hammer time i can't see it making an impact in any other shell but we do have a a tier 1.5 tier one strategy that would love to try a few copies of this
1: yeah absolutely it'll be interesting to see how deep they go on and you know how many copies around if it's a main board sideboard so Definitely want to keep an eye on. Uh, next up is Moria Marauder. So this is a red-red goblin warrior. Uh, it has double strike. It's a 1-1. One, one, and it says whenever a goblin or orc you control deals combat damage to a player, you can exile the top card of your library and you can play that card this turn. So this is a, a nice new addition for any goblin deck we have. Uh, since we got a Horde Hordemaster a few sets ago, um, the goblin deck has kind of been crawling around on the fringes. Obviously, this is a nice inclusion there. Unfortunately, it does still get hit by Ren and Six and all the other removal. Um, but it does solve your problem of kind of running out of gas too soon and, and just being able to play more threats and, and refill the battlefield. Any thoughts on this one? This card is quite strong. I mean, it—I missed the first time
0: I read it that it said whenever a goblin deals combat damage, yeah,
1: and no um, once per
0: turn. <laughs> and it's not once per turn, so you can. Um, trigger it two to three times the turn it comes down you can trigger it itself two times if you ever hit with it yeah um, if it's pumped it's very hard to block i think that it's the sort of card that i don't know what effect the goblin's deck is missing but this might not be the exact effect that it's missing to be successful right. we'll just have to wait and see but i do think that it dying to run in six and it just being a generic creature that doesn't do anything the turn uh, i mean it does do some something turn it comes into play so it, it is quite powerful but it doesn't seem broken to me. It just seems like an upgrade over some existing exactly. cards and goblins.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, all right, next up, totally different direction. We have Aragorn the Uniter. So this is uh, a Wooburg creature, 5-5 uh, five, five, legendary creature, Human Noble. And it's got four lines of text. So whenever you're casting other spells, you get to do something. When you cast a white spell, you get a 1-1 one, one human soldier token. Uh, when you cast a blue spell, you get to scry two. When you cast a red spell, uh, it deals three damage to target opponent. And whenever you cast a green spell, a target creature you control gets plus four, plus four until end of turn. So obviously, uh, this is going to have a hard time in formats outside of modern. Uh, but in modern, we do have a really good four or five color deck. Um, and notably, you can play this off of your omnath mana uh, after cracking the fetch so you get a lot of extra value you're already casting spells out of all these colors the question is is this enough power to slot into that deck when you have it full of pitch elementals and good spells um does it make the cut
0: it's a lot of text that kind of does nothing to be quite honest um (laughs) for, for the modern power level like getting plus four plus four dealing three damage is not really abilities that you want in a four color shell and making a 1-1 is pretty minimal, and dealing, uh, or sorry, uh, scrying 2 is good. I mean, it might be the best ability on the card. The best incentive for this card is if you cast one multicolored spell, you get all four abilities, which can get out of control pretty quickly. And I do expect that this is the sort of card that's going to make way more waves in Commander, a format where this is going to be a very sweet card for people to play with, and I, I think it's quite cool for something like Commander, yeah?
1: Yeah, definitely. It looks super busted for Commander. So actually, we'll bounce another commander card real quick uh, in Ring Sight, So this is one blue black for a sorcery. Uh, it reads the ring tempts you search your library for a card that shares a color with a legendary creature you control, reveal it and put it into your hand. Um, so notably, that first line with the ring tempts you the first time that happens. It works sort of like the dungeons, um, but basically that first line lets you make one of your creatures on the ability or on the battlefield, a legendary. So this is. Is a three mana tutor that if you have a creature out that's the color you want, you can go pick another legendary, uh, another creature that shares that color. Um, so this looks like a, a super sweet tutor for commander. Um, right, you can actually
0: it. get anything. Right, you can get anything that shares the color with it. So it, it is. A oh nice yeah, yeah tutor. that's right. You're mm-hmm.
1: right. Yeah, I, I read it as a creature. So that is that is good. Um, I see this having not too much impact in sixty card formats, but another one that looks fun for commander. Yep, cool card. I, I don't see it making any constructed impact though. Yeah. Next up, one that is looking like it definitely could have some constructed impact in Orcish Bowmasters. So this is one in a black for an Orc Archer, uh, one one with flash uh, when it enters the battlefield. And whenever an opponent draws a card, except the first one they draw in each of their draw steps, uh, Orcish Bowmasters deals one damage to any target and then you amass Orcs one. So that's the same as amassing with armies before. It's just Orcs now. This card is looking brutal for Legacy. Uh, I've been seeing people calling it "Death to Delver" and similar names. <laughs> uh, this card looks pretty sweet in Legacy. I'm not sure where else we're going to see it, but it looks great there. Yeah, it looks sweet to
0: me. It it could be good. It does have like a nice piece of text as well, and you know, it's two mana for two power, sometimes three very quickly, and it deals one to something.
1: And um, I like this card a lot. I I don't know how big of an impact it's going to have, but it's cool. Yeah. Any chance that modern uh, Rakdos Scam would pick this up as, you know, a sort of counter to Ragavan and DRCs, or is it just not quite flexible enough? I don't know if they care about
0: those cards enough. I mean, maybe I'm underrating the power level. It's
1: it's kind of too early to say, but I would suspect not typically. Uh... Yeah, that's fair. But yeah, Legacy, watch out. We'll have to see how this plays out. Next up, we have Samwise Gamgee. So green and white, you get a legendary creature, Halfling Peasant for the 2-2, whenever another non-token creature enters the battlefield under your control, you create a food token. Uh, and then you can also sacrifice three foods to return a target historic card, uh, so Artifact, Legendary, or Saga, from your graveyard to your hand. So some interesting food synergies, not only just on this card, but also in this set. Um, and notably in Modern, we did have the Asmo food deck. Uh, putting up some results for a little bit it's definitely fallen off now Um, but do we think that the food synergies in this lord of the rings set could help bring that back maybe in an abzan look yeah i
0: could see it i mean one thing i'm more excited about with this card is the combo with cauldron familiar too yeah like with cauldron familiar um and a sack outlet it goes infinite actually infinite damage Mm -hmm. so that that's a cool three card combo where you know if you played viscerous here this card and cauldron familiar you just get infinite drains Um, given that you can sack, return cat,
1: make another food, sack, return cat, make a food every single time. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, and then the last one we're going to talk about today is Rosie Cotton of South Lane. So this is uh, two and a white for a 1-1 Legendary Halfling Peasant. Uh, when ETBs, you create a food token. And whenever you create a token, you put a plus one plus one counter on a target creature you control other than Rosie. So this is another interesting tokens card. We also have another infinite combo here with Scurry Oak in Modern. You're- scurrio combo <laughs> yeah so another piece for that we can uh do crazy things any thoughts on this one um it seems like it's not gonna make any waves in
0: modern but i mean it's a cool combo card and i i think in other formats it could be good like in um commander or something else but i i really don't think that it's i think it's too slow for
1: modern yeah that makes sense all right well uh that is the lord of the rings previews we have to go over today so like i said we will talk about some more in the next episode if anything noteworthy comes out uh there's still a lot of cards from the set to get spoiled in the coming days so we will keep an eye on those and keep you updated but nathan anything else you'd like to mention before we head out for the day
0: no i'm super excited for the regionals and uh You know, if you're a fan of the podcast, feel free to come up and say hi. And I'd be super excited to talk to you in Dallas. So looking forward
1: to meeting you awesome folks there. And uh, good luck to all our listeners who are competing in the RC. Yeah, definitely. Good luck to everyone. And Nathan, good luck to you as well. We uh, look forward to hearing how it goes. And we'll we'll definitely chat about that in the next episode. And also just to throw this out there, we are going to be having some really great guest episodes coming up soon. We'll have more information about that in the coming weeks. But we'll also be posting a prompt for our patrons to ask questions and get them answered on those guest episodes. So be sure you subscribe to the Patreon uh, for that and all the other awesome benefits. And then lastly, do you like the content we've been putting out? We want to hear from you. We want to, like I said in the first episode, we want to sculpt this show to be everything you want so you can get the most out of it. So let us know what you're liking, what you're not liking, what you want to hear more of. And you can use our new hashtag, hashtag BoltZoneChat on Twitter. We'll be checking that so you can get in touch with us that way to let us know your thoughts so thank you so much for listening to this episode of the bolt zone if you enjoy the show please give us a follow and leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice we read all of them and love to hear from you and if you want to help support the show again consider subscribing to our patreon we really appreciate all the support there Uh, you can find the link for that in our show notes Uh, and thanks again to boogie board for their sponsorship till next time get out there and sling some spells